Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Naya, and I am one of the pastors here, and it is good to be with you here this morning. And we can never have enough jokes about daylight savings. Um, And so I am so glad that you arrived, because this morning it was a struggle um, for me to get up this morning. So, But I made it, and we're here, and I am just so thankful to be with you here this morning. So uh, let's pray, and we'll begin. God, we know that apart from you, we can't do a thing. And so, Lord, we're asking this morning that you would tune our hearts to sing your grace. That our hearts will sing no other name but Jesus. And God, I pray that as we gather together as one body to hear from you, that our hearts will be open to receive what you have in store for us this morning. And Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Recent studies and statistics have shown that this current generation, the millennials, are some of the loneliest and most anxious people in history. In fact, in the last two days, two days ago, I read that the suicide rate among African-American boys has sparked, as well as the suicide rate among college-age men. People feeling so lonely, so brought down by the wages of the world that they no longer want to live. And in fact, there are some who consider the church to be one of the most lonely and isolating places that they enter into. And it's not off to say that we are some of the most disconnected, isolated, and separated people in history. Let's admit it, we are lonely. And this isn't only for the person who is single in the room or for the person who lives alone. No, you can be married, have a family, have children, have friends, and yet still find yourself so alone, so disconnected, and so isolated. And some of you here this morning, are feeling exactly that. Or some of you know of someone who's feeling that or has felt that. And even questioning whether if God really cares. I mean, does God really, is he really true in what he says that he'll be with us always? I mean, is God even real? Wesley Hill who is a professor of biblical studies, writes on this idea of friendship. And his primary target audience are the gay community and their choice to be celibate. And he's talking about how friendship, we've lost this idea of really what it means to be in community with people. He's not talking in the context of romantic relationship. Those are important. But look at what he writes. He says, without people to love and be loved by, 
I don't imagine faith is very sustainable. And friends, he's right. And I'll even take it a step further and say that life in general, whether you believe in the Christian God or not, life in general is not sustainable without someone to love and to be loved by someone. And so this begs the question, how does God sustain his community? How do people who are lonely find companionship? How do people who are isolated find belonging? How are people who are lost find hope? How are people who are in need find their needs to be met? How does God sustain his community, his church, his children? And our text this morning that Andrew read for us tells us that first, God sustains his church through generosity. God takes care of us through friendship. Friendship marked this community here in the book of Acts. And it was made evident through generosity. And we've been going through the book of Acts and seeing the, how God is forming and shaping this new found community that will be the church and be the church that springs board for the rest to come, right? And we saw in chapter 2 how Peter preaches his infamous climactic sermon and how 3,000 people are added to this community, and then we find later how John and Peter are being flogged by the Sanhedrin, but yet they're still speaking the gospel and how God is continuously adding people to this community from 3,000 to 5,000. And now Luke gives us another sneak peek. He gives us another window into how this community was acting and how they were living amongst each other. And it says here in verse 32 that all the believers were one in heart and one in mind. Now, there was a famous Greek philosopher, and many of you might know who he is, but his name was Aristotle, okay? And Aristotle taught that friendship was about being one in mind and one in heart, Pretty good, right? I mean, it's in the Bible. You're like, man, this guy got it. He knew what he was talking about. But you see, in the Greco-Roman world, where the community of Acts is at their world, their, what they're going through in the day, you see, friendship was defined as being on equal playing fields, meaning you and I had to be the same in order to be considered friends. If you were rich, I was rich. If you were poor, I had to be poor. If you were highly regarded in society, I had to be highly regarded in society. If I gave you $20, you needed to give me $20 back because that is how friendship worked. You had to be on equal playing fields and also 
when you gave to the other person, they were commanded and demanded to give you the same thing back. You didn't just give to give. That's why you had to be with people who were the same as you, so they could give you the same back. And if that wasn't the case, then your relationship with that person would be one of a patron and a client, one of a business owner and a customer. You know, it's like going to Hy-Vee, right, or Price Chopper or Aldi or Walmart, whatever store of your choosing, and going to the cashier. Now, some of us actually dodge the cashier, right, and we actually go through the own self-checkout because you just don't want to deal um, with anybody when you go to the store, right? But when we go to the cashier, I can assure you that you're not thinking, man, I just want to be friends with this person. I'm going to go in there and we're going to be in a relationship with one another. And I can assure you that the cashier isn't thinking, I wonder how many customers I can be friends with today. No. You go to the store, you want them to check out your stuff, and you don't even want them to ask you how you're doing because you're having one of those days, and God forbid they ask you how you are, and you're just like, please, I just want to get out of here, right? And if they ask me one more time if I want to sign up for a Target red card, I swear, right? I mean, I'm d I don't want to sign up for a Target red card, right? We get frustrated. But that's how friendship was viewed in this society. If you weren't on equal playing fields, you were just the business owner, the cashier, and the customer. But you see, friends, this community in Acts was doing something very different. I mean, in verse 33, it says that God's grace was being displayed amongst this community. And verse 34 tells us that there were no needy persons among them. Do you know what this means? This means by default, there were people in this community of different social classes, of different economic standing, of different ethnicity. They were already going against the cultural narrative of the day of how friendship should work. And they were embodying Jesus' words that were spoken in Luke chapter 14 when he says, then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is debunking the Greek view of friendship. Jesus is going against the grain of what relationship looks like, and this community is following suit. They are embodying these words, and there were people who were in need, and because they were part of a community, and because they were in true friendship with one another, they gave without expecting anything in return. And they didn't just help out someone because they felt guilty, but they helped out knowing that these people were part of them. They were part of their family. They were part of who they were. 
And this is what true generosity is about, friends. It's about giving to the other without expecting anything back in return. It's about giving love and demonstrating love towards the other without demanding that same kind of love back in return. It's meeting one another's needs without ever holding it against them. It's creating a safe place of true belonging for all people, even if you disagree with them on every single thing. And Luke isn't telling us that we can't own nice things. Okay, don't get me wrong. All right, I like my nice stuff, right? I mean, he's not saying go and sell all of your possessions and that's what you need to do. No, no, no. Luke is saying that all of what we have and all of who we are is to be surrendered to the Lord. So much so that if God were to ask you to give generously with your possessions or to give generously with your life, you will do it. Because God in Jesus has been so generous to you and I without expecting anything back in return. That is the gospel message. You and I can never repair and repay God what he deserves, but he gave himself up anyway. And so, friends, are you living generously? I mean, my hunch is that we as a church, we do really well with giving our finances. I mean, I am blown away and amazed at how each and every one of you are committed here, how you give, and we are so blessed by that. I mean, I wouldn't be here if that weren't the case. And so we are just so thankful and grateful. But you know what? Sometimes I wonder if we often miss what true generosity can contain when we just focus on finances. Because, friends, it's easier to write a check than to show up at your, doors, your friend's door at 10 p.m. because they need you at that moment. It's easier to write a check than to walk with someone through their hardships and pain, not knowing when the end will be. It's easier to write a check than for someone to come in and disrupt your life. It's easier to write a check than to invite people who are so different than you and create and engage in relationship with one another. It's easier to write a check than to truly sit with someone and learn and go through the awkwardness and the conflict. So are you living generously through friendship? Can we say that we are a community that is marked by friendship? Luke goes on um, to write in verses 36 and 37 and introduces us to a man named Barnabas. And Barnabas is actually going to play a very key role later as we approach Paul's life in the book of Acts. But what you need to know about Barnabas is that he was a Hellenistic Jew, which only means that he was highly influenced by Greek beliefs, Greek philosophy, Greek ideals. And so Barnabas would have had the understanding that friendship is what Aristotle said friendship was. Equal playing fields, 
you give, you better give back to me, right? That type of thing. But you see, Barnabas was so moved by how this community was functioning that he went and sold his property, gave it to the apostles for their distribution. Barnabas saw how God's grace was moving mightily within this community that he couldn't help but want in. And friends, that is what the church of God is to do. People from the outside should look inside and say, I want to be a part of that. I want to give like that. I want to have friends like that. And he was so moved. Because, friends, God sustains his church. He sustains his children through the generosity of friendship. And everything looks so good, right? You're like, dang, that community got it going on. It was so easy for them, right? I just want to be a part of it. How can we do this? But you see, God also sustains his church through piercing discernment. God takes care of his children through his fierce protection. Right in the next chapter, in chapter 5, we are introduced to Ananias and Sapphira. And some of you can tell me the story from memory. You know who these people are. But you see, Luke intentionally puts Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira in direct contrast to show you how different these people act. You see, Ananias and Sapphira also had a piece of property, and they also sold it. And they also brought the proceeds before the apostles' feet. But you see, the difference was that Ananias and Sapphira kept some of the money. And you know what? That is not even the bad part about it, actually, because they were not demanded to give all of the money. That wasn't the deal. That's not even the bad part. The bad part is that Ananias presented himself as if he didn't keep all of the money, as if what he is giving to these apostles is all of what he sold for. Ananias thought that he could deceive and lie. And he thought that the Greek view of friendship that I give, and you better, you know, bolster me up, that's what he was functioning as. And before you think ill of Ananias, friends, we do the same thing. I do the same thing. I mean, kids, have you ever broken something at home and then are freaking out because mom comes home at five and you have to hurry up and fix it before she finds it? And then you pretend like it never broke, you know, it was fine. And then the next day they like move it and it breaks and you're like, oh, looks like you broke it, you know? I used to do that as a kid. Or, or some of you send flowers, right, to your significant other at work. That's really cute. Or you put it on like the table to, and make it and dress it up really nice so that they can take a picture of it, put it on social media. My husband or my wife is the best ex, right? 
Or you give of your time to a friend expecting that they are going to give you that same time next time. Right? I mean, we do this. And we even do it before God, don't we? Coming to him, presenting ourselves in one way as if he doesn't really know. I mean, we do it. But you see, look at what happens in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? They have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Ananias opened the door to temptation and fell right in. He fell right in. And Peter didn't know what Ananias was doing. But you see, God gives the gift of discernment and insight to people for the benefit of his church because Peter was able to sniff out and discern what Ananias was truly doing. It's like, you know, for kids, when your mom or your dad or your caregiver knows exactly what you did and you didn't even, like, tell them, right? Or you try to lie to them, like, I didn't do that. And they're like, no, I know you did this, and you did that, and you did that. And I remember as a kid, I used to get so annoyed because I couldn't get away with anything. Somehow mom knew everything, or somehow dad knew everything, right? Or it's like me coming here to Kansas City, and I was paired up with Barbara Lucas. And now if there is any person I know who is as generous and as discerning, it is Miss Barbara Lucas, okay? I mean, when you meet with her, you feel loved, cared for, challenged, okay, but, but pastored. And I remember first meeting her, and I'm telling her, you know, some of the things that are happening, you know, not giving so much because that's how I do with relationships. I'll give you a little bit. Can you handle it? Okay, I'll give you more, and then I'll give you more. And so she was listening and hearing, and then out of nowhere, she put together this grand thing, and I was just like, how did you know? How did you know details about my life that I didn't even share? How did you get it, and how are you telling me this? And then telling me things that I wouldn't even come to understand until later. And then one day, she just called my phone randomly asking, hey, are you doing all right? Because I don't think you are. And I'm just like, how did you know that? I didn't even give any indication. You see, friends, God gives people the gift of insight and discernment for the benefit of his church. And Ananias got found out, and soon after, he died. Peter tells him this, falls dead. And the people that were there were startled. They had a great fear. I don't blame them. And then three hours later comes Sapphira. Man, Sapphira. And she, she didn't know, right? She didn't know what happened to her husband. But she comes in, and Peter asks her in verses 8 and 9, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, 
how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. Sapphira had the chance and the opportunity to confess and come clean, and she decided not to. And friends, she also fell dead. And the people had to carry her out. And great fear was amongst the entire community. And that's how our story ends. What an ending. And I know some of you might be thinking, why death? Why did God see it fit that these two people who lied die? Why does it seem as if God is being a harsh judge? What is is going on here? Well, you see, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we have been seeing how God is forming and shaping the first century church to be the catalyst for all the churches to come. And what we have to understand is that God will go to great lengths to protect his children. This community was at a vulnerable position. They were on the margins, and persecution was coming at them left and right. And so the honesty and the vulnerability and the giving of what this church was comprised of needed to remain that way. And Ananias and Sapphira knew better. This wasn't their first encounter and stumble upon this community. They knew what this community was marked by. They knew what to do. I mean, they knew they had to sell their property. But you see, they decided to lie to the Holy Spirit, to deceive God, and to try and destroy a community. And I know this is hard for us because we, we think of lying as little. Right? I mean, there's a saying, right? A little white lie. We think it's not a big deal. But friends, lying is actually one of the most detrimental sins because by default, it is relational. Lying destroys communities. It destroys families. It destroys relationships. And God was not going to allow Ananias and Sapphira's lies and deceit pollute and destroy this community. But what you also have to know about God is that throughout the story of the Bible, God always, always, always extends his grace before ever executing his judgment. He warns, he pleads, he sends prophets. And he never executes his judgment without his other attributes also being on display, like love and mercy and kindness and omnipotence. We only function sometimes out of one emotion because we just can't handle it. But you see, God cannot function just on one attribute. He brings his entire self when he makes decisions and when he acts. And so God is more gracious than you and I can ever imagine, but he's also more just than you and I can ever fathom. 
And friends, God has sustained us here in Shawnee Mission, hasn't he? I mean, we've been mobile since the beginning, right? We've been, we were a baby, vulnerable. And we needed God to come and step in and protect and sustain us, and he has. But let me tell you, he is not going to let your or my deception ruin what he's doing here. He's not, because you know what? You can try to deceive the person next to you. You can try to deceive me or Andrew. I mean, you can definitely deceive Tim, right? We all know we can do that. Um, I mean, you can try to deceive your spouse, your friends, your coworkers, your teachers, whomever. But guess what? You and I will never be able to deceive God, no matter how much we try. And the whole community was filled with fear. And this should cause us a little bit of a shakeup in us. We should be a little bit afraid. And it does seem as if sometimes the lying and the deceit does win, right? I mean, we've seen throughout history how the church has been filled with this. We're not good at it. That's not just what happened there. It's happened and it still happens. But you know what? I can assure you that even if those people were not found out in their lifetime, God does sniff them out and they are found out. Because God will not allow deception or lies to pollute his community, his message, his gospel, and his witness. So friends, are you living honestly? Are you offering your life as a living sacrifice before God, boasting in your weakness. Because God sustains his community through piercing discernment and fierce protection. On September 25th, 2016, Naya Lisa Cuevas ran the half marathon, y'all. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And you know what? You know what? I got to tell you, when I was first starting, I was nervous. I mean, I was so nervous. And I was just like, man, I just, I just need to finish. That was on my mind. Finish and be at a good pace. And so I started off the race, and I'm running, and it's great, you know, and, it's, and I'm running mile four, and I have some friends, and, and they're like, yeah, go, Naya, woo! And I'm like, yeah, 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 you know, slapping their hands, like, yeah, I got it! And they all have, like, Nihilation shirts on. It's actually really cute. And so I was feeling great, mile five, mile six, mile seven, and then we're hitting mile eight and nine, and Naya Lisa Cuevas isn't feeling it anymore, y'all, because she turns the corner, and right to go down to the final stretch, y'all, everything started to hurt. I mean, and when I say everything, I mean my legs, my feet, my arms, my breathing. I was sweaty, and I was angry. And I was just by myself, and I prayed like I've never prayed before. And I'm like, Lord, how am I going to finish this race? Because I'm just in pain. And out of nowhere, one of my friends comes running, and he gets in the race. And he's like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, what do you think, man? I'm in pain right now. And he goes, I know it hurts. I know it hurts, Naya, but you got it. You're going to make it. 
you're going to do it. Keep running. And he, he goes, you know what? I'm going to go a little ahead, and I'm going to go and get the water for you so that you don't have to go alongside these runners and get hurt. He was trying to protect me. And so he went ahead, and he came back. And it's mile 11, and at this point, I am beyond angry. I mean, I've never been this angry in my life. And I was just mad. And he goes, hey, hey. I go, dude, I just want to stop. I can't do it. Like, I, I'm done. I made it to mile 11. He goes, hey, no, no, you're going to make it. He goes, you're going to do this. I know it hurts. I know it's hard, but you got it. Just keep going. I'm like, okay. And we hit mile 13. And I just need that point one left, right? And I turned the corner, and there were all my friends standing right there saying, go, Naya, run, you got it. This is the last push. And I'm like, all right. And I get it, and I, and I finish the race. It was the last little thing I needed. I couldn't finish that race without those people taking the time out of their Sunday morning and running across the Chicago Lakeshore Drive to make sure that they were there in the moments where I needed them because they knew that this was more than just a race. So friends, God sustains us by giving us friends by giving us each other. We need each other. I need you. And I couldn't finish that race without that skinny white guy standing next to the guy with the socks hat. He was the one that came in. And without his discernment and his fierce protection of other runners, I would not have finished that race. And so God sustains us through piercing discernment and fierce protection. And friends, God has come alongside us in our races in Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus ran our race on our behalf, which ultimately led to his death. Putting to death every injustice, every trauma, every sickness, every affliction, every wrongdoing next to you, every bitterness, every pain and sorrow, he put it to death. And not only that, he rose again so that he can continuously run our races with us, sustaining us, protecting us empathizing with us, continuously giving to us even when we fail and can't give back to him, understanding us. Friends, Jesus is the true embodiment of friendship, and he asks you and I to embody the same for one another, to love one another so deeply that we would give our lives for each other. And he is the true embodiment of protection and discernment because he is still acting his discernment through us by his spirit. And so, friends, as his followers, as his children, may we embody and be a community that is marked by friendship. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have gone and continue to go to great lengths for us. 
We thank you that you give people a place to belong. That you offer companionship. That you offer hope. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us uncomfortable. God, it's so easy to hear something like this and then go back home and just be normal and the same. But God, I ask that you would shake us up a little. That we would walk with others through their pain. That we would be available for others when they need. That we would reach out and extend and love with all that we have, knowing that we are continuously loved by you. And so, God, I thank you for this community. I thank you for the people that you have placed here. And, Lord, may we continue to grow in love for you and one another so that we can be a community that is marked by friendship because of how great of a friend you are to us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.